Thanks, Elliot. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. This message series that we're in uh, comes from a statement that Jesus made about himself. It's found in Luke 19, verse 10. This is what he said. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then, after his resurrection, he said this in John 20, 21, both to his current and future followers. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What that means is that what his mission was is now our mission. So we are here living in this community to do more than just work and live and have a good time. We, we have actually been sent here. I know we all made different choices that brought us here. Some of you grew up in this community. But behind all of that, we have been sent here to this community and to our jobs and to our neighborhoods to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, Jesus, of course, wasn't talking about those who are lost on the outside. The real problem that most people have is that they're lost on the inside. And what that means is they are without God's direction and guidance as they make their decisions and navigate the maze of life. And we've been talking about the different phases and the different facets that people tend to go through when they are lost on the inside, what that experience is like. We began a couple of weeks ago talking about the fact that often when people are lost on the inside, they get lost in the moment. What that means is they live their lives for a much smaller purpose than they were created for. We were created to to impact all of eternity, but we tend to settle for just uh, excitement in the moment or maybe in the week, and at most we tend to build lives that really will make an impact that will last at, you know, maybe a few decades, but we were created to do something much bigger than that. We get lost in the moment. Then last Sunday, we talked about getting lost in our emotions. Most people tend to live eventually for just how they feel. And as they navigate their life based on what they feel and what they would like to do and what makes them feel better, they tend to, they tend to cause a lot of damage to themselves and to those around them. Today we're going to look at another facet of being in this world without God to guide you. And that is we get lost or, or we get stuck in the past. Now you're probably very familiar with this nursery rhyme. It goes like this, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, we teach our kids this. We learned this growing up. And this uh, children's nursery rhyme it was, it was about an actual event in history. King Richard III of England had taken a, a bad fall during the Battle of Barnsworth. And that fall began not only his demise personally, his health began to decline until he died, but it really began, historians agree, that the demise of the entire House of York. The, the fall of the House of York can be traced back to that fall in that particular battle. And as the rhyme says, accurately, no amount of effort by the king's horses and the king's men could ever put the kingdom really back together again. Now, Humpty Dumpty is, I think, not just a metaphor of the story of the King Richard III, but it it really is a, a picture or an image of the story of humanity. We live in a world that has been shattered. It is broken by a great fall. And that fall is the fall into sin. Adam and Eve were the first ones to fall into sin. They were the representative heads of all of us, all of humanity who would follow after them. They were the first king and queen, really, of humanity. And when they fell into sin, we all tumbled with them. And now our lives and our world is is broken. And there are pieces lying everywhere. There's still a lot of nobility in this world and a lot of good in this world and in our own hearts, but, but it's been warped and it's been twisted and it's been broken by the impact of sin in our lives and in this world. And this brokenness shows up pretty much everywhere. 
But one of the places we tend to feel most lost and most broken is in our families. The average marriage in America lasts only seven years now. In the year 2000, we as a nation crossed a very sad line when the number of step families began to surpass the number of original families in America. That occurred back in 2000. Now, these are not just statistics. These are real people with real children who are trying to put the pieces of a broken past back together again. And oftentimes, for them, like, like it says for Humpty Dumpty, it seems like all of the combined efforts of all the king's horses and all the king's men just can't get it to go back together again. But God is the one who can. In fact, picking up the pieces of a broken past is, is what God does. Now, you may have doubts about your future because of something in your past, because of some form of brokenness, some, some way your past has become shattered by the impact of the fall in this world. And you, you feel like you're, you're a long ways off of God's original design. You're, you're far away from God's plan A for your life. But the Bible is full of plan B and plan C and plan D people that God used to do tremendous things. The best evidence, I think, of this is found in Jesus' own family tree. Now, you'd expect that his family tree would be nothing but plan A people, but that's just not the case. Now, this fact isn't buried in some obscure part of the Bible. It in, in fact, it is in the opening chapter of the first book of the New Testament. It's the lead story. Now, it doesn't read like a story because it's in a list of names. It's found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to understand the New Testament was kind of like a much-anticipated news conference, a news conference that had been lingering and waiting for probably about 400 years. For centuries, the Old Testament portion of the Bible had made the clear point of how broken this world is, and it had talked about the prophets of the Old Testament had prophesied about an answer that God was going to send in the form of His Messiah. And that answer is Jesus Christ. And so you'd expect that the long-awaited arrival of Jesus would begin with a, a much bigger narrative punch than just the reading of genealogies, the reading of a list of names. In fact, if you've started to read the New Testament, my guess is you made it two or three verses into the New Testament and then it skipped to chapter 2 of Matthew because it's just a list of names. It's not how you would expect the, the biggest news of all of human history to begin with just a list of names. It would be kind of like Apple starting their news conference this fall with just the list of the names of the board of directors. You know, everybody wants to know what the iPhone 8 is going to look like. We don't care who's on the board. Tell me what the iPhone 8 looks like. And that's really kind of the way the New Testament begins is, uh, why, why do we care about who all these people are? We just want to know about the Messiah. That's what we've been waiting to hear about. But God has a reason for opening the New Testament this way. In the middle of all of the names that we find in the list of Jesus' family tree, there are three names that are very surprising, names that you would not think would have ever made it into this family tree. There are three plan D people who had been shattered and had done some shattering on their own. And the point of these three is God can put the pieces of any life back together again. If you do what these three individuals did with the pieces of their life, God can rebuild your future into something worthy of the bloodline of His Son. And these three stories stand out as a tremendous hope for this community that is full of 
people who are broken, whether it's in their family life or whether it's in other areas. They are one decision away from having a very different future. There is hope. So let's read about these three. They're found in Matthew 1, verses 5 through 6. Now, again, this is a list of names, so hang with me. I'm not going to read the whole list, just this section. Here we go. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, Jewish genealogies only listed the father. But three times the mother is mentioned. This is what's so shocking about this section of the genealogy of Jesus. Why would the mother be mentioned three times? If you were a Jewish reader, if you were one of the people that read this or heard this list for the first time, you would have, you would have turned your head in shock as you heard these three mothers' names included on this list. Why, why, why is that happening? Well, it's so that the reader would stop and consider the story that's behind the members of these particular parts of the family tree. It was a way of kind of circling these three stories in red and saying, I, I want you to ponder what happened here. Each story points to what it takes to allow God to pick up the pieces of a shattered past. There are three requirements represented by these three stories. Requirement number one is this, separate from the sin. Separate from the sin. This is represented in the story of Rahab. The story of Rahab is found in Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. I would encourage you to read the entire story. I'm just going to summarize it for you here. Rahab was a prostitute. Talk about a family destroyer. The pieces of the families that she probably personally destroyed would, I would guess, number in the hundreds. So how did a prostitute make it into the family tree of Jesus Christ? Well, Joshua, the leader of Israel at the time, sent two men to explore the city of Joshua, to, to spy on the city of Joshua. And they went to Rahab's house to hide from those who had been pursuing them because, while well, men entering the house of a prostitute wouldn't raise near as much suspicion as strange men entering a strange house. But apparently they're ploy had not worked. It did raise suspicion. They had been noticed going into Rahab's house, and so the authorities came to Rahab's house to find these men and arrest them. And at that point, Rahab had a very big decision to make. Should she give up the men or lie about the fact that they were hiding in her house? Well, she chose to hide them, to protect them. Why? Why would Rahab do this? Well, Rahab had been thinking about her life and the true God. In fact, it's pretty obvious that the word of what God had done through the nation of Israel as they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea had spread throughout the entire world at that time. That's not something that you can keep a secret of. And so she, as well as many people, had been wondering about this God of Israel. You see, she lived among people who worshipped idols and even worse, they offered their children as sacrifices to them. And like all of her countrymen, she had heard of the God of Israel and had heard that he was angered by their worship and in particular their abuse of their little ones. She had heard about the miracles that this God had done at the Red Sea. And then God brought a decision to her front door. Will you leave your sinful past and follow me? 
Now, this wasn't a question that you answer on a test. This was a decision with a real price to it. She would have to leave what she knew, the culture she knew, the people she knew. She would have to leave what what she knew about her life, and she would have to trust God to take care of her in an unknown future. And this is one of the reasons people stay stuck in the past, is the past may be bad, the past may be broken, but they know the past. They know what to expect. They know the people of the past. But to make a sudden turn into a future they don't know, that, that takes a risk. Now, Rahab risked her life to do that. But that's what she did. She decided to follow the one true God. And of this decision, we read this in the New Testament portion of the Bible. James 2, verses 24 through 25 says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is not just a decision on the inside. It always has an expression on the outside. Was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous? Now just ponder that statement. The prostitute Rahab was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. She helped them escape. True faith is never just an internal decision to trust God. It is that. But it always shows up in some external action. There's always some next step to take, some step of faith, some risk to take to really follow God. So if your life is in pieces, or if you're helping someone whose life is in pieces, God will bring them, he will bring you to a point of decision like he did Rahab. In order to separate from your past sin, you'll have to take some very specific steps. Like separating yourself from those who are dragging you down. Steps like attaching yourself to a church and people who will help you move in a very different direction and learn very different patterns of life. And it will be a risk. Maybe not a Rahab-level risk where she's risking her life, but it'll be a risk. Because you're leaving what you know for something that you can only imagine, but you really don't know. But from that point of decision... Rahab's life did a 180, a complete turnaround. God picked up the pieces. She eventually married and gave birth to a son. And that son became the great, 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 great. There's 26 greats, so I'm not going to say them all. (laughs) Grandfather of Jesus Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? So if you have a broken past, there's hope. If Rahab can go from prostitute in a nation that sacrificed babies to being a member of the family tree of the Savior of the world, what can God do with your broken past and your life? But it requires a clear, clean break with the past. Not one of these swerves from the past, full of one small compromise after another, but a strong move to leave one life in exchange for another. Now, you're not going to be perfect. The past will, will always pull and will always call you back, but you're going to have to choose again and again to keep heading in the direction away from the past. You see, our community is full of brokenness. It's full of brokenness. But they are one decision away from a brand new life, a very different future. But the first decision is to separate from the sin. The second decision, the second requirement of allowing God to piece the broken past together 
is you have to set aside bitterness. One of the things that happens with the past is people hurt you, life hurts you, the circumstances happen that devastate you, and, and you can get stuck in the bitterness of the past. This lesson comes from the story of Ruth, the second mother listed on this list of the family tree of Jesus. The story of Ruth is found in the book of Ruth. It's a four-chapter read in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And like Rahab, Ruth was from a country of idol worshipers. But she married a man who worshipped the one true God, and she became a follower of this God. And then disaster struck. Her family was shattered by death, not just one death, but many deaths. Her husband was the first to die. And then her brother-in-law died. And then her father-in-law died. In grief, her sister-in-law went home, leaving only Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi herself, her mother-in-law, made plans to return to her home, expecting that Ruth would return to hers. You see, because at this time, a woman who had lost her husband was destitute. There were no social services or plans that would help a woman in this situation. And really, the only option available to her was to return back to her family and get some support from them. And so that was the thought. Naomi was going to return to her hometown, and she expected that Ruth would return to hers. But what that meant for Ruth is that she would have to turn her back on God because there was no way that her newfound faith in God could survive without any support in her hometown. As the only believer in God, she, she knew she would struggle and probably not be able to continue to follow the one true God. And she didn't want to leave God, the God that she had come to know, even after all of this tragedy. Now, that's amazing because one of the forms of bitterness is people get bitter at God. When the circumstances of life cause devastation, well, God's the one that often gets blamed for all of it because he is in charge. He is in control. People get mad at God, but not Ruth. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, though, made the other decision. She had grown up knowing God, but she very quickly turned away from God and towards bitterness. In fact, she changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. Now, if you actually change your name to bitter, you're pretty bitter. (laughs) You're really upset, really struggling with God at this point. But Ruth didn't do that. Even though her world had been shattered by the death of her husband and members of the extended family, she knew that her future was in the hands of God, not in her hands. And so she decided that only as she followed this God would her life be put back together. So she left her country, turned her back on her hometown, and followed Naomi to her hometown. The name of that town? you'll probably recognize, was Bethlehem. That's where Naomi was from, and that's where they returned. And once they got to Bethlehem, while Naomi wallowed in bitterness, or her new name Mara wallowed in bitterness, Ruth moved forward one step at a time. It was a hard life, and food was scarce. So she went out into the field of Boaz, a man who owned some property, and she asked if she could pick up the grain that was left over after the harvesters had moved through the field. And she was allowed to do that. This was a common practice, one way that you could at least get enough to survive. 
And that's what she did to feed herself and her mother-in-law. But eventually she caught the eye of the owner of the field, Boaz. And you'll have to read Ruth for yourself. It's one of the great love stories in the Old Testament. Eventually the two of them married, and she gave birth to a son. And we read this in the final chapter of the book of Ruth, Ruth 4, verses 16 through 17. It says, Then Naomi, apparently now she's changed her name back to Pleasant, Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Now, it wasn't her son. It was her grandson. But you you have to understand that after the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the women in the village knew that it was as if she had been given another son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. And what that means is Ruth became the great, 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 25 greats, grandmother of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because of one key decision. She set aside bitterness and trusted God for her future. If she had remained bitter, if she had said, I I don't want anything to do with this God that would allow my husband to die, she would, would have missed out on the chance to be a part of the family tree of the Savior of the world. Bitterness over what has happened to us or been done to us just leaves us stuck in the past. But when we forgive those who have wronged us, and when we turn to the God that we don't understand why he's allowed this to happen, and we decide to continue to follow him in faith, God then takes what has been shattered and pieces it together into a future more amazing than anything we can imagine. You know, as her husband lay dying in her arms in a strange country, there was no way, no way that Ruth could have imagined that we'd be reading about her thousands of years later. There's no way she could have seen that. But if we set aside bitterness, this is the kind of thing that God can do with our future. That brings us to the final requirement for God putting the pieces together again of a broken past, and that is... Stop the cover-up. We have to stop the cover-up. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. The story of King David's act of adultery with Bathsheba is found in 2 Samuel, verses 11 through 12. You can read the details for yourself, but it really reads like most adulteries do. A man, bored with his responsibilities, sees a beautiful woman. But as adulteries go... This one is particularly awful, and that's because not only does it end a marriage, but it ends with the arranged murder of her husband by David. Now, being a king at this time meant that he was above the law, and so David hid his deed behind a cover-up, actually had agents orchestrate the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he thought he'd gotten away with it, but God saw as he always does. And he sent his prophet Nathan to confront David. And David realizes what he has done. What a mess. How could you ever clean this mess up? Well, there's no way David knew what to do next to begin to put the pieces together, but he knew the one thing that he needed to do. He needed to confess his sin. And in Psalm 51, I would encourage you to read the entire psalm this week. Psalm 51 is... David's confession to God after he'd been confronted by the prophet Nathan about what he had done. 
But I want to read to you two verses in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, because it, it captures the essence of what it means to confess our sin, to repent. Here's what he says. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, speaking to God here, or I would bring it. You know, if, if I could just bring a sacrifice, some, some payment to make up for this, uh, I'd do it. But that's not going to do anything to this. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, animal sacrifice is what Israel did at this point to ask God for mercy for their sin. The reason is because it pointed to the fact that one day a final sacrifice would be made for our sin. God himself would take on a body. His name was Jesus Christ, and he would die, and he would shed his blood for our own sin. And that's what God did for our sin. There was a sacrifice that provides forgiveness for sin. But the question that David addressed here is, what's my part in this? What, what do I do? What, what do you want from me, God? And he comes up with two words that describe what it is that God's looking for in our hearts. First, he says, you, you want a broken spirit in me. What does that mean? That our spirit is, is really the center of our will. When our spirit is broken, the idea is we, we've just kind of lost the will to do something. So what is a broken spirit then? It basically means to be done with the effort of putting your own life together without God. That's what a broken spirit is, to get to the point where I no longer have confidence in my will and what I want. I've tried it again and again and again, and things keep breaking apart. To get to the point where I'm, I'm done with my will as the lead in my life. I, I, I want to do what God wants me to do. David said, that's, that's what you're really looking for in my heart. It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The word contrite literally carries with it the image of collapsing, kind of the idea is the air just goes out of. And it's speaking of pride. The pride is it's just gone. There's no energy left to cover up the truth. You know, we think that what God would despise in us is our brokenness. But what he really despises is our arrogant attempts to cover up how bad it really is and to try to fix it on our own. And so it says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So when we bring our brokenness to him, when we bring our sin to him, and we say, I, I can't put this together. I don't have the wisdom or the ability to piece my life together again. It's not what I want in this. I want to know what you want. And I'm done covering up. I'm done pretending to myself and to everybody else that I've got this. I can pull this together. I'm, I'm done with that. I've, I'm, I'm deflated of my pride. God says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not going to despise that. When we finally give up on the inside and stop the cover-up game, God says, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now I can help you. Up to that point, I was allowing you to do what you wanted to do. Kind of like what we do as parents when our two-year-olds say, no, I can do it, I can do it. Well, it's like you just step back and say, all right. And you stay close to catch them as they fall. But you just, okay. Not until we ask for God's help does he step in to help. And what's interesting to me about 
what David says here is giving up in life and giving in to God are alarmingly close to each other. Both contain a sense of collapse. Both really come to the edge of yourself when, when it's just not working and everything is falling apart. But giving up looks at the pieces of the broken past and decides this is hopeless. And it gives up. That takes many forms, but there's a sense of, I'm hopeless. It gives up. No one can fix this. But giving in is very different. It sees the exact same set of facts and realizes that, yeah, I can't fix this, but it realizes secondarily only God can. And it scoops up all of the pieces and grabs them and hands them to God and says, God, can you do something with this pile? Can you arrange this in any way that might be good? And those who decide to give up in life at some point, they don't realize that they were walking on holy ground. They were, they were one decision away from experiencing the ground on which God does his best miracles. If they had just kneeled before God with their past rather than collapse under the weight of it, God would have started to arrange the pieces of the past, of their path, past into something of tremendous beauty. If you walk through the ruins of ancient cities, you discover very quickly why they're called ruins. This is an example of, of a city in the Mediterranean that uh, looks like this. If you've ever walked through these cities, they, they look pretty much like this. You know, there's some walls and there's some streets and there's parts of columns that still exist. But for the most part, the city is destroyed. It's, it's in pieces. But if you've ever walked through one of these cities, you'll, you'll notice that there's one thing that seems to survive better than any other part of these ancient ruins, these ancient cities, and that is the mosaics. When you look on the floors of many of the buildings or the homes, you'll find mosaics. Now, there's some of them that are still broken up, but the mosaics, for the most part, are still kind of in place, and they look exactly like they did 2,000 years ago. That's amazing that out of, a, of a, a great city of the ancient past, that it's the mosaics that would, would have the longest survival time. And I think the reason is because as mosaics, they started out as pieces. You know, the city ended up in pieces, but the mosaics began as pieces of glass and stone and pottery, broken pottery. And then an artist would take those broken pieces and arrange them. And now it's these arranged pieces that have stood the test of time. And I think this is a great image of what God is doing now with individual lives. He is creating mosaics out of the broken pieces of our past. But in order for that to occur, we, we have to bring our pieces to Him. He doesn't take them from us. He doesn't force us into a, a life arrangement that we don't want. No, we, we have to yield to him. We have to bring the pieces to him. We have to, as we've just said, we, we've got to separate from our sin. We have to say, look, I'm, I'm done doing life my way. We have to set aside our bitterness. All bitterness does is arrange the pieces in anger and sadness. And we have to stop pretending that we got this, that all is fine. You see, when this life is over, 
the pieces of your life and the pieces of my life will take one of two forms. Either they will be a part of the landscape of human ruin, or they will be part of the eternal mosaic that God is making up, the most beautiful art that you will ever imagine. Now, a mosaic requires a skilled artist who is above all of the pieces, who is high enough to be able to see how to arrange the pieces. And that's why we can't assemble the pieces of our own life. Our, our perspective is we're at, we're at ground level. We are in pieces. And pieces can't arrange themselves. They don't have the perspective. They don't have the elevation, the vision to see where this piece fits and that piece fits and this piece fits and the overall picture comes together. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put pieces together into a mosaic. Only Jesus can. And as I've said, this community is, is full of broken lives. Now, it doesn't look like it, as we've said from the surface. And that's because the glue of affluence can make the pieces look pretty good from eye level. From the perspective of heaven, it's still pieces. But from eye level, it looks pretty good. In fact, I saw a story, you may have seen this, but we as a city now, Huntington Beach this last uh, week was ranked as the sixth happiest city in all of America. <laughs> now, I don't know how they figured that out. I don't know if they had one of those Google cars going by, you know, just mapping people's smiles, and we were, for some reason that day, we were smiling more than everybody else. I don't know how you do that. Actually, I was interested. How do they know that? Well, it's just a guess, of course. And you look at it, it was put together by a financial website. And so, yeah, you know where this is going. We got a lot of money, and apparently that means we're happy. Now, that wasn't the only metric, but that was the dominant metric that they used to determine our happiness in the different you know, facilities and services that a community that has a, has a lot of money can have. And so that's, you know, we're the sixth happiest city in America now. But if you, if you just scratch below the surface of the smiles or the money, there's a lot of pieces. There's a lot of families that are broken. There's a lot of lives that are broken. And only God can begin to put things together. That they are just one decision away from going from a pile of pieces to God's eternal mosaic. Something that will give him glory and we will stand back in awe for all of eternity. Now we're using three words in this series to, to focus us, to be a part of this mission that Jesus has given all of us. And the three words are pray and invest and invite. We're beginning by praying and just asking God to help us see our community the way he does and to look around where we live and where we work and as we're standing in line in our grocery stores and just pray for the people around us. And then the next two words are invest and invite. And we actually have a little business card size uh, in your program. It may have fallen out by now, but if not, go ahead and grab this. I want to just talk about this briefly. The invest word means that we rather, rather than just stand back and pray, we, we want to step forward and help people. We want to step forward and maybe have a conversation if there's an opportunity for that, or serve or help in some real tangible way. And then the word invite is we want to invite people to join us here on Sunday for Easter service and then this message series that follows, the five weeks that follow after that. And so what we've done here is we've, on the back of the card, you'll see there's a spot for three names. And this is just for you. 
This isn't a turn in or anything. You just take this and use it yourself and pray about who are the three people that God has put in your life that as far as you can tell, they're trying to navigate the maze of this world without direction from God. And pray for those three people and invest in some way and serve and help in some way. And then invite these three people to join you on Easter in the series that follows. So these are for you, and I encourage you to use these in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we come before you with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Many of us have lived long enough to, to learn the hard way that our ideas don't yield a good life. That we over and over again find ourselves at the dead end of a blind alley. And our heart now is contrite before you. Rather than get on our feet and try to charge into that wall again, thinking it'll budge, we realize that only you can take our past and build a different future out of it. And many of us in this room have done that, and we are so grateful to see that out of the past, something of eternal value, something that will rival the beauty of the great mountains and a sunset is what we get to be a part of. But as we look out on our community, the vast majority are trying just to arrange the pieces as best they can from the perspective that they have. And thought things are still falling apart. So God, I pray that you would put on our hearts the names of three people that you want us to invest in, you want us to pray for, and you want us to invite, to consider you and what you can do. Give us courage, we pray. Help us to see this community the way you do. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.